Hi there, I'm Mark Scarborough, and this is the podcast Walking with Dante, and I have been waiting and waiting for this episode, because this is one of my all-time favorite parts of comedy, at least of Inferno. And why? Because this passage, the end of Canto 3, is so rife with problems. This is why I want to go slow through the comedy. Because this passage, which seems so simple on its surface, is so complex. Just to remind you where we are, Dante has passed in Canto 3 through the gate of hell. He has seen those who refuse to make a choice in this life and apparently in the next life because there are angels there who also didn't make a choice. And then he has come to the edge of a river, Acheron or Acarante, as I called it last time, He's standing there with this crowd of people and Karen says, you can't pass over and Dante, and Dante is going to and knows he has to and knows he has to be on this journey and all of that. It's all weighing on this passage. If you want to see this passage in my rough English translation, please look up the website website walkingwithdante.com or markscarbro.com. Walking with Dante just directs you to markscarbro.com, my website. You'll see a subheader on my website called Walking with Dante, and there on a blog you will see lots of translations. You'll see this very episode amongst all the other episodes of this podcast. You can read this translation or better, get yourself a great translation by Robert Hollander or by Stanley Lombardo and take it from there along with me. So here's the passage from Canto 3, lines 109 all the way to the end to 136. The demon Karen, with eyes of burning coals, motioned to them and collected all of them, beating those who hesitated with his oar. As leaves in autumn let go and fall, one after another, until the branch sees all of its tatters on the ground, so also did these, the bad seed of Adam, cast themselves one by one from that shore when the sign was given, like a falcon to its lure. And so they started to go across the dark water, but before they even got out on the other shore, a new crowd gathered on this bank. My son, my courteous master said, all these who die under God's wrath come together here from every country, all ready to cross the river because divine justice goads them so that their fears morph into their desires. No good soul ever comes this way. So if Karen whines about you, you know now exactly what he means. As he was finishing up, the dark plane shook so forcefully that even now the memory bathes me in sweat. A wind came up from the tear-soaked ground, flashing a scarlet light, which overpowered my feelings, and I collapsed like a person suddenly asleep. So what I want to do is take this passage in four different segments. And the first segment is just the first three lines. So let's go back and look at the first tercet of this bit that we're reading today, the first three-line stanza. 
The demon Karen, with eyes of burning coals, motioned to them and collected all of them, beating those who hesitated with his oar. I want to say two things about this little three-line bit, and neither of them has anything really to do with this three-line bit. <laughs> but it sets up problems elsewhere. This is the first problem. How do the dead feel pain? I get it. Karen's got all these people on the shore. He's trying to get him into his boat. I picture his ragged old boat practically sunk, but it doesn't say that in the text. It's like, I don't know, it could be a gigantic Holland America cruise liner for all I know. But he's got them on the shore there, and uh, I like that you cross into the underworld on a cruise ship. Um, but he's got them all there, and he beats them with his oar. And clearly, this is supposed to hurt. This is supposed to spur them on to getting into the boat. But how exactly do the dead feel pain? That question is not raised in this tercet, except it is a question about corporeality, and it may actually weigh on this canto's end of Dante collapsing, fainting at the end of the canto, as we'll talk about. But right now, I can just raise the question of how the dead feel pain. It's a corker. It's going to become much more of a corker as we go forward in the comedy. And the amazing thing is Dante's not going to run away from this. You know, a lot of fantasy writers, Dante's not writing fantasy, but a lot of fantasy writers run away from problems in their own plots. A lot of highly imaginative plots actually have all kinds of problems in them. For example, let me give you an example of George R.R.R.R.R.R.R. Martin's <laughs> Game of Thrones. You know, from the very opening of Game of Thrones, listen, we know Daenerys is going to win. She's got dragons. <laughs> it's absurd. Nobody can beat the dragon. Now, of course, she doesn't ultimately win at the very end, at least of the TV series. But come on, she's got dragons. Nobody can beat this kind of thing. Maybe the King of the Dead when he gets one. But, you know, it's we know from the beginning it's just going to be a fight about dragons. And that's it. That problem is just erased in Game of Thrones. It's sitting there for any reader who's paying attention. It's sitting there to say, wait a minute, the plot, really nothing is at stake here. There's very little that is finally at stake in this plot. And yet, Martin just skips over this problem and lets the plot hole sit there. Well, there's a plot hole here. How do people without bodies feel pain? Medievals know about nerves. They don't know exactly how nerves work, and they don't know about, of course, slow twitch and fast twitch muscle tissue and all that kind of stuff that we now know. But they do know that nerves cause pain, and they do know what the larger nerves look like, even from animal dissection, from animal butchery, in fact. They know what nerves are. How, then, does a being without a body without nerves, how does it feel pain? This is a giant question, not only for Dante, but for anyone who believes in a pain afterlife. And in fact, it's not just a question of punishment as pain, because as we'll see when we get to purgatory, pain is part of the purgation of this world's sins. I mean, the, the, the redeemed who are sitting in purgatory purgating their sins, they have to feel the fire and they have to feel the woe and they have to feel the pain because pain is their educative rather than punishing. So how is it that these things experience pain? It's so tough. In other words, how does a corporeality, a corporeality, I like that. How about a corporeal reality? How does a corporeal reality translate into a spiritual plane?
Now listen, of course, as a modern, I can say, how how do the damned even have emotions? How does anyone in the afterlife have an emotion without a brain? But okay, you know what? I'll, I'll grant the terms of that debate. I'll say some people believe, of course, that the spirit is the most essential part of you. So sure, fine, I'll buy it that your emotions or your feelings would then be present in that spirit. Still doesn't explain how that spirit would feel pain. That's my first quibble with this tercet, and it's a big quibble, and the thing that's amazing is Dante is going to take it on head on. The other thing is, you may have missed the first three words, the demon Karen. I blew past that because you think, oh gosh, this guy with the thinning hair and the shaggy beard and the (laughs) eyes set around wheels inside, wheels of fire and eyes like burning coals and all that kind of stuff. Of course, it's a demon, but just stop. Demon Karen That is a combination of Christian and classical thought in three words. (laughs) Just almost nothing, a sentence fragment. Classical and Christian imagery have been combined. And that may seem like, well, that may seem like what Dante's doing or even easy, but it's not. Which brings us to the second part of this passage. It's a big simile. It's one of the biggest ones, one of the most commented ones in all of comedy. There are several reasons for this, but we'll talk about this in a minute. But here it goes. Let me just read it back to you again. As leaves in autumn let go and fall one after another until the branch sees all of its tatters on the ground, so also did these, the bad seed of Adam, cast themselves one by one from that shore when the sign was given, like a falcon to its lure. And so they started to go across the dark water, and before they even got out on the other shore, a new crowd gathered on this bank. Okay, I told you early on that these similes, these giant metaphors, were going to become more complex. And this one is much more complex because just think about what I just read to you. As leaves in autumn let go and fall one after another, so we have trees that are losing their leaves until the branch sees all of its tatters on the ground. The the idea in the Tuscan, in the medieval Tuscan, is spoils. So the idea is that the tree is clothed and its clothes are kind of falling into spoils or tatters on the ground, that it's undressing. But more than undressing, its finery is turning to shreds. Um, Again, uh, perhaps the best way to translate that is to see all its spoils on the ground. But I wanted you to hear it as this clothing imagery, which it kind of is, that these leaves are coming off and they're just becoming tatters, ragged on the ground. So also did all of these, the bad seed of heaven, cast themselves one by one from that shore. I just pause right there and I can say the metaphor, leaves in autumn like Owen fall, is difficult against what it says. Listen, I live in New England, in rural New England, with lots of trees. And in the fall, I have never seen leaves cast themselves off a tree. So clearly, this imagery is not about how the, how the, they fall, but rather about the turning of the leaves into spoils or into tatters. In other words, the imagery of the simile and what's actually happening, the damned casting themselves into Karen's boat, is not exactly fitting 
at first glance. Because, you know, again, you think the leaves let go and fall and the damned cast themselves. One sounds kind of gentle and, you know, falling leaves to the earth. And the other sounds very active, cast themselves one by one from that shore. So we have to figure out how the simile matches what goes on. And clearly it's not about the motion, which it first appears to be as leaves in autumn let go and fall. It's instead about the state of the souls, tatters. So they did, the bad seed of Adam cast themselves one by one from that shore when the sign was given, when Karen told them to get in the boat, I take it, like a falcon to its lure. And notice how big this simile is. In other words, we've got a opening simile of leaves, then we've got the actual event, the damned casting themselves in the boat, and then we finish with a second shorter simile, falcon to its lure. And in fact, that one is even harder because cast themselves sounds, and it's important to see it, it doesn't just sound like it, it's important to see that they're not being pushed. They are choosing to get in this boat. It's not that they get there and, and, and against their will they're driven to this boat, but they seem to want to get into the boat. And do you remember in the last episode of the podcast in the earlier lines, Dante asks Virgil, why do they seem so eager? Now we get a hint like a falcon to its lure. Falcons come back to their lure because there's food there, because there's something that drives them back to the lure, that causes them to want to come back to the lure. So they are eager to come back. On first blush, just first blush, this is starting to sound very Calvinistic. I, I realize it's ridiculous to talk about Calvin in the Middle Ages, but it's starting to sound like they don't have a choice. I mean, does a falcon have its choice to come back to the lure? Well, kind of, but kind of not. It's driven there because the food is there. And yet in the middle of all of that, I see cast themselves. So that's a choice. Do you see how this is getting a little bit complex? Are they driven to it or are they choosing it? How are they getting in this boat? And I should just say, this is an important point. It, the passage is actually going to turn on this point. This is a really important point because if they're not choosing it, then you can't say that hell is a choice. It's part of the will. It's You can't say that you got yourself there. Then you're going to be like Calvin and just claim that certain people are destined for hell and certain people are destined for heaven. But Dante's going to want everyone to make a choice. I made a big deal about this last time about cursing their God and cursing their parents and etc. All that stuff that they're still choosing to be the damned. And here they're casting themselves and yet Falcon with Lure kind of muddies it. It's because the passage actually is smarter than we might first imagine. But to do that, we have to get through the passage. But let me just say one more thing about this simile. This simile as autumn, as leaves in autumn let go and fall, Dante is actually quoting Virgil. And I think this is important. I think it's important enough that I want to read you the passage in the Aeneid. This is when Aeneas gets to the underworld and he has to cross the river with Karen, just as is happening here. And there's this big simile that happens in the Aeneid. So let me read it to you. This is in the Fagels, Robert Fagels' translation of the Aeneid. It's in book six, uh, about lines 309 to 312 in the Latin. It's a little later in the Fagels' translation because he's uh, got a more relaxed style. It's about line 352, 54 in the Fagels' translation. But let me just read you the passage in the Aeneid. 
from Virgil. A huge throng of the dead came streaming toward the banks. Boy, it sounds like Dante, right? But it's not. It's Virgil. Mothers and grown men and ghosts of great-souled heroes, their bodies stripped of life, and boys and unwed girls and sons laid on the pyre before their parents' eyes. So all these different kinds of dead people arrive. As thick as leaves in autumn woods at the first frost that slip and float to earth, or densest flocks of birds that wing from the heaving sea to shore when winter's chill drives them over the waves to landfalls drenched in sunlight. There they stood, pleading to be the first ones ferried over. Okay, so Dante is cribbing this image from Virgil. And I just want to say that Virgil, just to make it as completely complex as possible, Virgil is cribbing that image from Homer. Dante doesn't know Homer. He knows of Homer, but he does not know Homer. Those manuscripts are not available to Dante. But Virgil is cribbing it from Homer. Dante is cribbing this metaphor from Virgil. Later, just to show you, Milton will crib this very simile from Dante. And later yet, Percy Bysshe Shelley in Ode to the West Wind will crib this very metaphor from Milton. So these, this passage, as leaves in autumn let go and fall one after the other, it's Homer to Virgil, Virgil to Dante, Dante to Milton, Milton to Shelley. The reason I'm doing that huge song and dance, the effect of one writer on another. Think about the weight, the literary weight on these lines. It's amazing that this metaphor has lasted thousands of years and picked up by major writers one after the other in order to explain this kind of strange passage from one state of existence to another. An amazingly thick passage all about the damned here standing on the shore waiting to go across. Okay, the third bit. The third bit is Virgil's answer. My son, my courteous master said, all these who die under God's wrath come together here from every country. In other words, everybody that dies across the world ends up right here on the shores of this river. Of course, not the neutrals. They, they clearly don't even make it this far. The neutral angels and the neutral people. But all the rest who die under God's wrath come together here from every country. This is the staging ground of the afterlife. All ready to cross the river because divine justice, this is the motivational impetus of Inferno, divine justice goads them so that their fears morph into their desires. No good soul ever comes this way, so if Karen whines about you, you now know exactly what he means. This is Virgil's answer to that question Dante asked clear in the last episode back at line 72. Who are these people? What disposition makes them so eager to want to cross? Virgil then reprimands Dante, remember, and says, basically, shut up and everything that you want to know is going to be answered when we get to the shore of the river. And then Dante sees all of it and Virgil offers the answer after having seen it. This is what's interesting here, is that Virgil waits for Dante to see the scene completely before he explains the scene. This is as if saying, 
I'm going to give you the details and then I'm going to tell you the frame they fit in. If Virgil, I'm just positing here, if Virgil had told Dante early on that this is the problem and this is what these people are and this is who they are and this is why they do and this is all that bit, then maybe Dante wouldn't have seen the scene as clearly as he did. And he saw clearly the Karen's eyes in burning wheels and his, and, you know, his unshaven jowls and his white and thinning hair. And Dante saw it in kind of a detail-oriented vision. If you already know what it means, can you see something all that well? If you already have the answer... Can you notice the details? And maybe Virgil knows this. Maybe there's a delay here so that Dante the Pilgrim will see the details themselves. But what is so amazing about this passage is what Virgil says is the root problem. All ready to cross the river because divine justice goads them so that their fears morph into their desires. This is the ultimate corruption of humans in Dante, but let me tell you, this is the ultimate corruption of humans. Dante is practically Freud here. Not quite, I'm being a little silly, but that notion that your desires are actually your fears reimagined, that that is why the damned are so eager. They have their fear of hell and the afterlife has actually morphed into their desire. That's why they're like a falcon to its lure. That's why they're so eager to cross. And that is, oh my gosh, that is such the core human problem. Think about it. You're, maybe not you, I'm not pointing directly at you. I mean us, but you... (laughs) (laughs) But you, maybe you're so afraid of being alone and your basic fear is that you're going to end up alone in this world and so you marry a woman, a man, somebody who is not right for you and your marriage is not happy. Why? Because your fear turned into your desire. Or maybe in the middle of COVID-19, you're reaching for that bottle of wine or that bottle of bourbon a little more often. Why? Because your fear is becoming your desire. Because you're wanting that bourbon, that wine. Because in the end, what you're afraid of is the pestilence of our times. Dante here has reinterpreted sin into a fully human context. Fears become your desires. It's still theological, of course. It's still completely connected to divine justice for Dante. It's never going to not be that. And yet at the same time, this notion of the root nature is so crucial to what's going to happen in the comedy and so crucial to the notion that Dante is seeing beyond the fences of his own imaginative pasture. I mean, he's telling you here why you, and I'm going to use his words, why you sin. 
It's not just that you sin. This is why you sin and what eventually happens to you, that your fear morphs into your desires. Okay, I can take that out of the sin context here and say he's talking about the nature of why people do bad things and why people do bad things to themselves and how they end up driving themselves to do bad things because their fears morph into their desires. It, it takes my breath away. It is so human, so me, so this moment, so every moment. And here, inside of a larger theological context, we can start to see the shape of humanism. Now the last bit, and really the hardest bit. As he, Virgil, was finishing up, the dark plain shook so forcefully that even now the memory bathes me in sweat. A wind came up from the tear-soaked ground, flashing a scarlet light which overpowered my feelings, and I collapsed like a person suddenly asleep. Let me just, before I talk about this passage, let me just explain something about medieval notions of geology. Uh, according to much medieval thought, earthquakes are caused because wind is released from the earth. Basically, <laughs> an earthquake is the earth passing gas. And this is the notion that there are winds trapped down below that get released, and so earthquakes happen. Because here we have an earthquake. A wind came up from the tear-soaked ground. The plane is a um, compagna, the big open wide space. The plane shakes forcefully. We get this earthquake. It's weird. It's synesthetic. In other words, it combines the, the senses because we get a wind that comes up from the tear-soaked ground, that flashing a scarlet light. How can a wind be scarlet? How can a wind have light? So it's got a whole kind of overwhelming, all senses engaged, <laughs> wild response. I mean, you could say that maybe flames came up like in an earthquake from a crack, but it's weird. It seems to indicate that the wind flashes a scarlet light. I, I would argue it's all more dreamy and weird. And Dante faints. Without a single doubt, something fails. The question is what? So I've got a couple answers for that. Three, actually. Let me detail them for you, and you can pick amongst them. The first failure here might well be pilgrim failure. That is, Dante the pilgrim fails. He passes out. Um, the reason I say that is because the opening of the next canto, the very next line of the next canto, Dante is awake on the other shore. And so he is passed out right as he's about to cross the river and cannot make it across. This is how the passage is often read. That is that Dante uh, he's impetuous. Remember early on in the canto when he, I mean, early on in uh, a few lines ago, actually, in the canto, when he wanted to bug Virgil about who are these people and why are they so eager to cross and Virgil reprimanded him? In a traditional reading of the comedy, what's happening here is that Dante doesn't really have his feelings all in check. He doesn't have his emotions in check. Virgil is the embodiment of human reason. Human reason says, you know, hey, settle down. But here we see that Dante's still like a little kid. He's like a little kid in line at Six Flags. Come on, come on, come on. Let's go, let's go, let's go. And his feelings are so overwhelmed. You know, Virgil is the parent saying, we will get there in good time. And 
all of that. But the kid is still the kid. Oh, let's go, let's go, let's go, let's go. And by the time we get here, he's so wound up and so crazy that he just passes out. And his, his, uh, his emotions are out of control. I think that that's an okay reading. It's not exactly the one I hold to. Let me give you a sub-reading of that about Pilgrim failure. Is Maybe he passes out. Not because his emotions are out of control. It does say overpowered. I translated as overpowered my feelings. That word's a little funky there in the medieval Tuscan feelings. It can be sensations. It can be emotions. It can be sensory input. But one of the things that can happen here is that you could be seeing that Dante is all fear and no desire. In other words, the Dante is signaling to us that he is not one of the damned. They have morphed their fears into their desires. But he here has not morphed his fear into his desire. He's just all fear. And so we're being signaled that Dante is not one of the damned. Even though he's standing here in hell, and even though he's going to cross the river into hell, he's not one of them because his fears have not morphed into his desires. Instead, his fears have overwhelmed him and remained fears. If that's all the case, these are all the various ways that this can be that the pilgrim himself fails at this moment in the journey, either to signal to us that he's not one of the damned or to signal to us that his emotions are just completely out of control. Let's go on to the second way this may work. Maybe this is Virgilian failure or Virgil's failure. I want to tell you that I have never, ever seen this reading advanced by any Dante scholar, but it always sits in the back of my mind. And let me explain it to you. Virgil is supposed to get Dante to realize where he's going, and he's supposed to kind of help Dante see what he sees. And we saw Virgil as being irritated at Dante earlier, and now maybe Virgil felt a little bad about why he was so irritated with Dante. Stop asking me so many questions here, because he says, my son, my courteous master said, all these who die under God's wrath come together from come together here from every country. My son. Maybe Virgil's feeling a little guilty that he was so, oh, so strident earlier. And so he's being kind of kind and he's explaining to Dante what exactly is happening here. And he explains it. You know, he gives the motivation. He tells you that the damn, their fears more than the desire, divine justice goads them on. Don't worry about Karen. He may whine, but don't worry about him. It, you know, there you go. Except he forgot to say one thing. And don't forget, hell is a place full of earthquakes. And it's an unstable geography. And it's an unstable geology. Well, maybe geography too. It's an unstable geology. And he didn't actually explain the whole scene. Or by the time his explanation comes, it's too late. The scene is so overwrought and everything that's happened is so dramatic. Well, it's just too late. And Virgil has not done what Virgil needs to do. Virgil has not, in fact, protected Dante or explained it enough to him so that he can understand what he sees. And in the end, this would be the collapse of Virgil. It, certainly, if you were to accept this reading, this is the collapse of Virgil as the allegory of human reason, that he is human reason leading Dante through part of the underworld. That would certainly add up here. And... 
there's a part of me that always likes this scene as a kind of um, send-up of Virgilian failure. Listen, you know me at this point. If you've listened to this podcast, you know that I believe that Virgil is a complicated figure in in comedy. And he's not just all good or beneficent or human reason. I believe Virgil is full of Virgilness. And sometimes he's petulant. Sometimes he's wrong. Sometimes he's worried. Sometimes he's angry. And here... Maybe he's just not doing his job like he's supposed to. Now, a third reason. It's not pilgrim failure, and it's not Virgil failure. It's poet failure. It is the failure of the poet, finally, to make sense of his own text. And let me give you, an, give you a couple reasons for that. When the passage says, as he, Virgil, was finishing up, the dark plane shook so forcefully, even now, the memory bathes me in sweat right then, we have a picture of Dante at his desk writing. That's the poet. In other words, I remember this so well that even now I am just coated in sweat over the fear of it as a poet. Wind came up from the tear soaked can, flashing scarlet light, which overpowered my feelings. We're back to the pilgrim now. And I collapsed like a person suddenly asleep. What I mean by poet failure, it's clear Dante crosses the river. Dante's going to wake up on the other side of the river. How did he get there? The early commentators go crazy on this. They offer all kinds of ways he gets across this river. That Virgil carries him. That Beatrice comes and carries him. That Lucy comes and carries him. That St. Bernard comes and carries him. There's some way that you could read Lucy, and that has to do with something that happens in Purgatorio, where indeed St. Lucy does carry Dante, but that's way down the line. Any of those interpretations have to step into the gap between I collapse like a person suddenly asleep and the next line of the next canto, which is waking up on the other shore. And it just seems to me obvious that he gets across in Karen's boat. This didn't seem obvious to most of the early commentators, but it just seems to me obvious. But here's the problem. If Dante were to step into Karen's boat, it would sink into the water a bit, wouldn't it? Because Dante is corporeal. What part of the afterlife is corporeal? Is Karen corporeal? Is he bodily? Is his boat a physical boat? If it's a physical boat, then Dante's weight is going to push it down into the water when he steps into it. I only bring this up because it's going to come up later in comedy, this whole problem of Dante stepping into a boat. And the question of Dante's corporeality, well, the poet may be just chicken to deal with it at this point. The poet may be shying away from it. How am I going to get this corporeal, this in-the-body person across the afterlife? How is this going to work? How's the physics, to use a modern word, of it going to work? How the mechanics, to use a medieval word, of it going to work? How is it going to work out? What are going to be the causalities at work for a person in the body to walk through the afterlife? And maybe the poet just shies away from it and can't deal with it. And so the poet has the pilgrim collapse on this shore and wake up on the other shore. Um, Robert Hollander, the great translator, has another, he has another idea, and that is, I, I, this is an interesting idea, that this entire passage is just getting too Virgilian for Dante the Poet, that, that, that we're using Virgilian similes, leaves in autumn let go, this looks like Virgil's Aeneid, where Aeneas is standing on the river, and Karen's there, and the souls of the dead, and the whole passage is just getting too Virgilian, and in the end, the poet collapses, 
pauses and drops the scene of crossing the river because the poet just cannot stand to actually get this Virgilian. I mean, it's just getting overwhelmingly close to Aeneas and the Aeneid. And so, as it were, I'm putting words now in Hollander's mouth, but as it were, the poet faints for fear of just becoming too much like Virgil in his own poetry. That's an interesting idea, too, because it all relates to poetic failure. And I tend to come down on this line of the corporeal question and the question of the body in the afterlife, because Dante's going to worry this out over the next, oh my God, over the next 60 cantos, Dante's going to worry this question out and finally come to some kind of answers. But it would seem to me that what we have here is poetic failure more than Pilgrim or Virgilian failure. And this may make some people uncomfortable. I don't know why. Do you need heroes? Do you need writers to be your hero? Do you need writers that always get it right? Do you need writers that are perfect? Modern literary interpretation arises out of scholastic readings of the Bible, medieval scholastic readings. It's not exactly based on scholastic readings, the way scholastics pull things apart into minute pieces and listed all the ways each piece was related to each piece. It's not exactly that, but that is the basis of how we now in literary studies read texts. The way that monks and and St. Thomas Aquinas and others read the Bible. We read it to parse out its careful meaning. And many of us have no longer a Bible. And so many of us have looked to other literary texts to become our Bibles, to become as perfect as once the monks thought the Bible. Why? Why do people need this? I found this out the hard way in grad school. I remember very clearly when I gave my first paper on Chaucer. And, you know, I was a grad student, so I was a little snarky and a little snide about Chaucer. I wrote on Chaucer's Parsons Tale, the last tale, the Canterbury Tales, a gigantic medieval treatise on sin and penance. And I was a little snarky about the whole thing, and I found out that that didn't play very well because there were so many people at the International Medieval Conference in Kalamazoo, Michigan, who had spent their entire life working on Chaucer, and they did not want anyone to point out what may be flaws in the Canterbury Tales or what this little pipsqueak kid thought were flaws in the Canterbury Tales because they still needed something inerrant. They still needed something that held all the weight of truth they wanted to put on it. Listen, the comedy is imperfect, as everything made by humans is imperfect. But it will hold the weight of interpretation, imperfections at all. That's what makes it a great work. That's what puts it up with the I Ching, and that's what puts it up with Joyce's Ulysses, and that's what puts it up in the Empyrean of literary texts, is despite its cracks, it will hold the weight of interpretation. If you still hold the Bible as the word of God, you don't need the comedy to be perfect. If you don't hold the Bible as the word of God, you don't need the comedy to be perfect. Nobody needs it to be perfect. Instead, what we need is a poem that expresses what it is to be people. And what it is to be people is that we make our worst mistakes when our fears 
morph into our desires. I hope you've enjoyed this podcast of Walking with Dante. This is a long podcast because this is a complicated passage with lots of issues brought up. Just to say, look at the level of interpretive malarkey, the level of interpretive blather that this text can support and causes, not only supports, but causes by its very existence. I hope you will subscribe to this podcast. I hope you'll rate it. I could use a good rating. Subscribe so you won't miss an episode. If you jumped in here at Canto 3, lines 109 through 136, go all the way back. I'm walking with Dante clear back to the beginning in episode 1, and you can catch back up to this point and then go on with this. It's a great thing about podcasts. They're totally quantum. They're happening in every reality at once. So you can start the journey at any time. If you want to see my rough translation of this passage, check out the website walkingwithdante.com. It directs to markscarbo.com, and there you you can find a subhead, and most importantly, you can see this passage and the comments are open. Let's get a conversation going. I would love that. Connect with me on social media, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I'd love to see you there. But come back for Canto 4 and the start of the first circle of hell on the next episode of Walking with Dante.